helping your child transition can be a challenge. Transitions can be very difficult for autistic students. And today I had on Danny Lavecchio. She is a duly licensed speech language pathologist and board certified behavior analyst. She's the co-owner of Bridge Kids New York in Manhattan. And she specializes in providing ABA and speech language therapy to children and young adults with autism. We talked today all about strategies to help students transition. So transitioning to a new school, transitioning to having a babysitter, transitioning among the day. And she provides really easy strategies, whether you have an autistic child or you have a typical learner. These are just great parenting tips for for transition, period. Great information. Can't wait for you to tune in. And this is a great one. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 46. We have a great episode today. We have with us Danny Lavecchio from Bridge Kids New York. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It's so nice to meet you in person, um, air quotes, because I feel like we connected on Instagram because you are a fellow SLP BCBA and you've just always been so supportive of my work and commenting and liking. And I know we've talked, I talk about social media a lot, but it's just such a nice way to connect with people that are kind of doing the same type of work. So I'm excited to have you on today and just learn a little bit more about you and kind of your journey into being a speech therapist and BCBA. I don't know all the deets on that. So I'm excited for you to share. So can you tell us just kind of how you got started in the field and then what came first, SLP, BCBA? How did that all work? Yes. So I started off, I always knew I wanted to work with children. I started off as like an education major at Loyola, Maryland. And during one of my volunteer placements, it was at a school in downtown Baltimore for children with autism. And, you know, I fell in love with every child in that classroom, but then I would see this girl come in and take them out one by one. I'm like, oh, what is she, like, what is she doing? That seems like a lot more manageable. And like, (laughs) she was the speech therapist. So I changed my major because of that. And yeah, so then I, you know, I knew that like autism was where I wanted to really focus my energy, my skills, my experiences. So I nannied for a family with a young boy with autism while I was at Loyola and I still, I'm still in touch with them today. He was such a special boy and he taught me a lot. And then I went for my master's at Montclair state where I'm I'm from New Jersey. And then I got my first job as a speech pathologist at an early intervention center on the lower East side of Manhattan. And it was an ABA center. So Everybody there was doing ABA and then I would provide, you know, 30 minute speech chunks for the little babies there. So when was that? What year was that? I'm just curious when you got started. That was 2010. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So I ended up staying there for, you know, four years. Actually, I think it was 2009. I take that back. I was there for five years. And when I started there, I was like, okay, yeah, like you guys do your ABA stuff, but I do speech, you know, and I (laughs) very much wanted to, you know, set myself apart from them. And, you know, in grad school, I'd been taught ABA is robotic and Mm. 
awful and you know um so then I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah. Interesting because, you know, in my graduate coursework, I, I went to Kent State. I definitely had like one professor. I actually am going to have her on the podcast later this month that who didn't really, she didn't talk bad about ABA. She stayed pretty neutral, but I knew she wasn't like a big fan, uh, but yeah. I loved her class. She was like my favorite professor. So that's interesting that they kind of let you know how they really felt. Okay. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and I, look, I definitely was biased going in, but right. and I realized that like, you know, what they were doing was working and like that child that I couldn't, you know, just model and, you know, use like an enriched language approach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They weren't learning that way. Like there needed to be a next step for that. So I, so then I signed up for my BCBA courses at Florida Institute of Technology. Okay. Um, And I did my practicum, my supervision hours at the center. And there was a group of us doing it, special educators, myself, and an OT. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, we met like weekly. We had individual supervision. It was just, it was the best environment to really learn all of that because I was living it every day, Mm -hmm. you know, hands on. Mm -hmm. And I had, there was two or three other BCBAs there. So it was, you know, a dream environment to learn Mm -hmm. ABA that way, especially coming from like a speech background. It was just, it was amazing. And that's, so we had that's nice. You had like your own cohort cohort almost. Yeah. That's really nice. That's kind of when I got my BCBA, I was working as an autism facilitator and support specialist. It was kind of like a, a friendly consultative admin job down in Austin, Texas in this 35 school district. But it was the same way. I was completely immersed in actually working kind of like a consultant. And then my BCBA supervisor was Kelly Wood Rich, who has started the verbal behavior conference. I think it's like on year three or four now, but it was just just, yeah, it was the best experience. And I had my, my buddy was also a, a teacher becoming a BCBA and she was kind of in my little cohort. And it's just nice to be around people because it's such an immersive experience. Were you able to go and take just the 15 credits or did you have to get a whole other master's when you got your BCBA? Um, it wasn't a whole other master's. Okay. I think it was like, I want to say, I don't even remember at this point. I think it was like a year and a half. Yeah, that's what I did too. So if you're listening and you're kind of like, how do you become a BCBA? So at one time, speech therapists were able to, with our masters, then take this uh, sequence of courses, do the hours, do the supervision, take the test. It's still a lot. And then they kind of changed the rules. And for the past couple of years, quite a few years, they've said, no, you need a whole other master's. We're not accepting the speech therapy master's. But now the field is, you know, really growing. Um, and so now they've gone back to, if you have your master's in speech therapy, that you can take the courses, do the hours and take the test. So I think that's really nice because I have this other business I don't really talk about a lot on this podcast called Supervision Academy. And we specialize in supervising people in a remote way who are getting their BCBA. And, you know, we supervise a lot of speech therapists, which is really fun for me to connect with people who are are becoming duly certified because it's, I'm like, I like all all unicorns, all SLP BCBAs because we're all kind of thinking the same way. So that's cool that you had that immersive experience. And then you, and then you went off on your own and that's how you formed your practice? Yep. The director of the Early Intervention Center, um, she's a, my partner now, um, Dr. Perry Sessions. She's a psychologist in a BCBA. And we just were like, we want to do this. We want to do it our way without yeah. all like the paper, like, you know, all that stuff that yeah. goes along with like early intervention. And right. so, yeah, yep. We started Bridge Kids 2014, just celebrated seven years in May. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. Very cool. I love that. I'm excited for our topic today. I know we're going to be talking about 
making transitions easier for autistic students. And I definitely know there are so many times I can think back to when a transition time was really difficult for some of my students. I used to work in preschool. I've had some preschoolers who really had you know, a hard time transitioning from like a waiting room to the therapy room, or, you know, I go in and I actually used to do, have a couple slides on this where you go in as a, a public school speech therapist or, or clinic-based, because I've always worked non-public too, till I have my own business, but, you know, get, you go in to get a kid for therapy and they're on the iPad and you don't know how long they've been on said iPad. And then you say time for speech and then, you know, what ensues next is, is not always the greatest thing. Now, you know, obviously right. there's a problem with the environment there and we could let the kid bring the iPad. And obviously I do all those things, but I think sometimes it's just really hard for people to understand how to make those transitions easier. And just because you have autism doesn't mean you're going to have trouble with transitions. Actually, Dr. Mary Barbera, who's a friend of mine, and she's been on the podcast. She just, she's doing this posting 25 days about autism on her Facebook page, but she just posted that Luke is her son who has autism, who's an adult now, you know, actually really likes to do transitions. So (laughs) transition isn't hard for him, but for a lot of kids, it really is. So I'm excited for you to share these strategies because I know a lot of people listening are um, like, oh my gosh, transitions are really difficult. And even for my own typically developing kids, I have three of them, you know, I try to prime them and prep them. And I'm sure we'll talk about that as a strategy, but you know, transitions are hard. So I'm excited for you to break this down for us. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, quite honestly, when I'm thinking about helping children with autism transition, I'm thinking about this, the strategies I use with my own three daughters who are Mm -hmm. all, I have three girls under five, but one thing that I, and I had a girlfriend actually texting me this morning, like, you know, my son hates going to school. He hides behind the the chair before we Mm -hmm. leave. So, you know, she was like asking for tips. And one thing that I do believe is like universal across just parents in general is like kids feed off of your vibe. Mm -hmm. So if you have anxiety about a transition for a new school, a new, you know, a play date, a new environment, a restaurant, the kids are going to feed off of that. And, you know, particularly for school drop-off or, you know, you know, putting your kid on the bus for the first time or, you know, changing to a different school, like, I firmly believe that that parent is like, this is going to be the best day. Like so happy. I am cool, confident. I am happy for you. You are safe. I will see you after. I feel Mm -hmm. like that goes a long way. We as parents, you know, if we see our kid crying or upset or dysregulated, our instinct is to hug them and, you know, it's okay. You're going to be fine. But, you know, sometimes that actually feeds into them thinking, well, this is going to be scary, you know, Mm -hmm. like. So for me, I think having the parent or professional stay calm and cool and collected is huge. I also, for our autistic children, I love using a visual schedule and visuals in general. Mm-hmm. Um, preparing them ahead of time is so important too. And one of our learners we had starting a new school and we, you know, we asked for pictures of the teachers at the new mm-hmm. school. We asked, we printed out pictures of the school. The parents took the child to the school for, you know, to, to see it like a dry run and all these things really like helped him. He was excited, but, you know, we started prepping him about six weeks before the first day of school. And, you know, um, we told him what it would be like, how he would get there, showed him pictures. This is what it'll look like. Here's who your teacher will be. Here's who your speech therapist will be. And he has transitioned beautifully. I mean, he, you know, he's an amazing kid and he's so happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we think we think some of what we did, you know, resulted in Absolutely. a transition. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. I do some um, speech. I'm a speech therapy supervisor for an SLPA, um, actually in Washington State. 
And we've been doing some of that too. It's a really interesting program where the students are there for 12 weeks and then they transition, you know, back to their uh, regular services. It's a really cool time because it's all early intervention, very young students. But we had a student that was coming in and we knew that it was going to be something different for that student. So what we try to do is the same thing. We do it on a PowerPoint because parents now, you know, pull it up on their phone, right? If you email them, but we did the same thing. We took pictures of staff and, you know, we let everybody know, you know, what they were going to be doing and what hours they would be there and what would they be doing during that time. And I think that's really important. I mean, for my own children too, my son just, he's my baby and he just started kindergarten, but they do all those things, right? You go in April before for kindergarten screening. So you're in the building and, you know, you're, you're there with the teachers and they have a come through and bring your school supplies. And even with COVID, you know, everyone's wearing a mask. We still did all those things. And I think that absolutely prepares kids because I think anybody, like, even if I go to like a new workout class or something new, I'm always kind of hanging back like, oh, how do we do this? What are we doing? Because you feel unsure when you get into any kind of new situation. I feel like after 42, that would wear off, but I don't know. (laughs) I still feel that way about new stuff. No, I feel the same way. And, you know, to that point, I feel like transitioning for, you know, to a new space, is kind of almost like a skill in itself. And then separating from a parent is another whole bag of worms. So like, I feel like we can work on improving this separation aspect, you know, that can start, you know, immediately. And like, for me as a parent, I am all about babysitters. I'm all about having mm-hmm. a range of babysitters. So my right. kids are completely used to me, mm-hmm. you know, having a babysitter come. I usually have them come and play while I'm home for an hour or two. Yeah. So the child get so like my kids get used to her and then I'll use them for another time when I'm leaving. And now because I've done that, you know, it's pretty seamless. And I have friends that can't leave their kids with babysitters oh. because they've never given their kids that experience before. So I think like when we look towards separating or any big steps for an autistic learner, like we got to start small and we got to start in advance. Mm-hmm. Um for separation tips, definitely starting with smaller chunks of time. The first time you're going to leave your kid or separate from them, start small so that they know you're going to come back. Right. And then I'm kind of jumping all over the place here. Yeah, no, that's a good idea though. I like that idea too, because we had, I had Lindsay Nataki on who um, has an amazing, um, I met her on TikTok actually. I'm on TikTok. Hello. (laughs) You're so Um, good on TikTok. Oh, thank you. One of my videos just got 65,000 views. It's just, yeah, it's fun for me. It's reinforcing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I I do enjoy it over there. But I had Lindsay Nataki on, she's a speech therapist and she's really awesome. And she's in California, but she said, you know, for parents, especially just all parents in general, parents really need to focus on self-care, which I know is like one of those terms that's kind of cringy, but you know, leaving self-care can just mean like you leaving your child with a sitter or you getting like a mother's helper, the idea of having the babysitter over so you can, your kids can get acclimated. I think sometimes that's hard for parents. And I, I actually, I forget the name of the company, but it's based in Austin, Texas. But I would imagine in some bigger cities, they might have companies like this where they are catering to parents who have children with special needs and they're providing babysitters and nannies who have a certain level of training for working with autistic learners or any type of student. And I think what a great service, because I think as a parent in general, it's scary to have a babysitter sometimes. And I think in general for parents, you know, especially if your child has a disability, you might on top of that normal Mm -hmm. mom guilt or dad guilt, you might feel another layer of fear as well. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good point and so important to consider that. And, you know, we have parents reaching out asking for that. And a lot of them, like we actually have had some like 
nannies that spend so much time with our kids that we end up training them in, you know, ABA or speech approaches. And that's been really beneficial. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's like encouraging to the parent when the child professional can like, you know, do some of what we're doing. And then in terms of like going back to using the visual schedule for kids with mm-hmm. autism for transitions, I find this really helpful just so they know what to expect. And another kind of using a visual schedule or if the learner is able to read or just, you know, can process, you know, oral information is letting them know like, all right, we're going to do, we're going to go to this new school today. And then I'm going to pick you up. Who's going to pick you up? And what are we going to do right after? And following a difficult or new transition with a highly preferred activity can be a great way to set the child up for success because Mm -hmm. they may be feeling anxious, scared, nervous about doing this, but they're going to go. And if they're there feeling a certain way, they know at some point mom's coming, dad's coming, baby's Mm -hmm. coming. And then when they come, this really great thing is going to happen. a little pre-MAC principle. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. So do you, what are your thoughts on, because I can just imagine some people in, in some districts, you know, I'm lucky in the fact that I can like make color copies, although I have to, I work in a public school three days a week as a therapist, but you know, I have to send that to a copy center. <laughs> you know, there's a process. Do you do visual schedules? Like, do you have any app recommendations for visual schedules or do you usually print things out? Like, what is your recommendation on the logistics of setting up a visual schedule? So, I mean, I think just in general, it, the importance is having a schedule, presenting mm-hmm. to the child, reviewing it with the child. We use written schedules for some kids. Mm-hmm. Um, we we do print out like um, photographs for some mm-hmm. kids, PowerPoints for some kids. I know our therapists have apps that they use that I'm blanking on. Um, okay, okay. But, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we have an office so our therapists can come and laminate and make all the pretty mm-hmm. things for sure. But you know, depending on the the needs of the learner, you know, right. the simple basic first then can be helpful mm-hmm, in transitioning. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. No, I love that. So a visual schedule, I think that's a really good idea because sometimes those transitions can be difficult. I love the idea of, you know, increasing the time that you potentially would be away if you had a sitter, because I think that's something that's really important for parents to think about too. Any other ideas about making those transitions? Because there's so many transitions that we make across the day. I'm, I was just thinking, you know, like when you have a student come to speech therapy or they're going to OT or, you know, like any other recommendations or strategies you have for trans, those transition times. Yes. I, I've also found it to be helpful if that learner has you know, a comfort item with them that they're able to bring with them across environments. So it gives them that security. If that learner is with me, I have that comfort. And so like using a transitional item across all transitions can be helpful. It gives them a a sense of comfort and it kind of keeps a little bit of their sameness with them in the new environments. That would be like, I feel like my my little nugget of information and, Mm -hmm. you know, for, for autistic learners. And then one bit of advice I do have for like parents starting a new school or, you know, and this is all parents. I know that sometimes there's options for like one or two days a week versus Mm -hmm. a five day a week. And I actually find that sign up for the five day a week because you (laughs) want that kid to get used to that transition Mm -hmm. every day for five days in a row. And yes, it might be a lot. It might be scary, but it's going to take a lot longer when they're only learning to do that twice a week versus five days a week. My daughter's preschool, actually, they used to have an option to come Monday, Wednesday, or Friday. Okay. As the three-day option. And I suggested they move it to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so that the child gets that like block of repetition yeah. and learning and understanding. Mm-hmm. I, it's scary to leave, but I always get picked up. 
you know, and they did make that change. So that was cool. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. No, I know what you mean because my own daughter, she was going, our first daughter, she did like a traditional daycare, I think. And she really liked it. But if there was an extended time of a break, like after a holiday, and it was really hard for her to get back into the groove. And I remember one time we had like MLK day off. Like I didn't have to work and I was going to visit a friend and I had my daughter go to daycare because I just knew that if I didn't keep the schedule the same, that it was going to be really hard for her. I do think, you know, like when kids are really young, like I do think the schedule is very, very important and it's important to keep a schedule. But as a treating therapist, I work three days a week in a middle school and high school. And I do see as students get older, and I would love to get your feedback on this, you know, there are times where the schedule changes. We have to remain flexible. And so sometimes I will have people say, you know, um, you know, I get kind of frantic, like, oh my gosh, I have them as a school-based therapist, right? It's like, I've got a lot of barriers to actually getting the therapy. And so I might have a meeting that comes up, or I might have to talk to a parent, or I might have a have to, and I might have to reschedule that session or something like that. And so I think it's important for our students to be able to kind of go with the flow too eventually. So let's say that we get the transition and everything is going. Do you have any ways that we can kind of antecedently give our kids practice on when the schedule changes. I mean, I know that's just hard for kids in general. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a skill we work on across of all of our learners, like regardless of their need level, like getting used, like, it's like kind of a catch 22 because we're like, routines are awesome. Be consistent. And like, you know, that works really well for most kids and especially kids on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But then when they get too used to that Mm -hmm. and their reaction to slight changes are so large, that's interfering. And that's going to hold them back because as you said, you know, nothing follows a perfect schedule all the time. There are uh-huh. always going to be changes to your day, changes to your plans. And, you know, I honestly have a hard time dealing with, <laughs> with those changes as well. But, you know, I think as much as possible, I do feel like going through the schedule at the start of the day. So like, okay, there's no speech today, like letting them know. Mm-hmm. Like that's where I feel like the visual or written schedule comes in handy because the unexpected is can be like a trigger for a lot of people. So like understanding that there's no speech today, instead of speech, we have gym or gym is going to be inside today because it's raining, you know, that, that can be upsetting. You know, we have therapy teams of sometimes three to five providers. We may be providing 40 hours a week of ABA to our learners. So Mm -hmm. we make for some of them that have, you know, that want to know and like that assurance of knowing who's going to come on what day and right. oh somebody's on vacation, who's going to come. So we actually make um, a calendar and we put the therapist's face on oh the calendar God. days yes. and then the child has that calendar. So, you know, mm. during that session, you know, to prep for the next day, we're like, okay, tomorrow it's not going to be Brenna. It's going to be, you know, Chelsea because yeah. Brenna's on vacation, but then look, Brenna's going to be back next week. And mm-hmm. we we found like, prepping as much as possible for change and for transition is helpful. Obviously there's going to be times where we can't prep. Um, Again, I do feel like staying calm, reminding of, okay, Mm -hmm. this is the change to our schedule, but here's what we're going to do after this, you know, trying Mm -hmm. to push forward to the future and like 
understand that this is, we're not in this state of uncertainty indefinitely. Like there is an end to this. <laughs> Something else will happen after this. Oh, I like that idea. I love the idea with the staff and the calendar. Cause I know when I was working before I started ABA speech, I divided my time between a public school and a non-public program. You know, um, a, a public non-public program had about 80 students and you can imagine how much staff was included there, but there was just a lot of you know, different staff that, you know, yeah, somebody's on vacation or somebody has to do something different or somebody's in a different room today. So I like the idea of having the pictures because I think sometimes that can be, yeah, hard for kids. I mean, I think it's a great idea on one hand, and we've talked about it on the podcast before to plan for generalization. So you do have students working with different staff members. You don't want to have them strapped to one person and then the student doesn't generalize any skills and they're not very flexible. But I'm sure kids get familiar with different staff. And so I like that idea. So would that be that that calendar would be in that student's individual work area? Yes. And then, you know, we also use that approach when we're onboarding a new therapist or there's a therapist change. Mm -hmm. Um, We'll have, you know, let's say somebody's replacing a therapist or joining a team, like we'll have like a meet so-and-so, you know, PowerPoint. And then like that picture will start being on the calendar and like, we'll put the new therapist on the calendar with the familiar therapist to pair them together and see like, oh, they're both going to come at the same time for a little bit, but then it's just going to be that. And, you know, to your point about planning for generalization, we do try and have at least two therapists on every case because we Mm -hmm. do encounter that. Like we have a learner right now who was, you know, making so much progress. And then anytime, like we had a new therapist join and it was like a different child. So we're like, okay, this kid needs almost like a different therapist every day so that Mm -hmm. we can like, you know, really teach him to perform his skills across various people. Right. And, you know, we see some clients at our office. So to that same point, we do make sure that we do have some sessions in the home so that skills are carried out across both environments. Oh, I love that. These are such great ideas. The only other thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, one of the points you had was determine a communication system with your provider. So, you know, what can parents expect? I mean, I'm very lucky to work in just a lovely school district where the teacher sends an amazing note and it's like detailed as far as who got speech and OT and, you know, because the kids oftentimes do get all those different services. I mean, I just got back from a home visit where the child I see is just starting to, he's doing some ABA and he's doing some preschool and the school is my home district. You know, this kid, I don't see many private clients. I don't have too much time for that, but I'll see you within five minutes of my house, basically. And this kid is having the best transition to preschool because the school district um, that I live in has been very communicative with parents. But I know, you know, I have a lot of parents on the podcast and I know that's just not always the case. So, you know, what are some important things? Like if we're, if parents are listening and they're like, gosh, I wish I knew more about what was going on in my kid's day, especially, you know, when we're working with individuals who are autistic, who are non-speech, Speaking, you know, as a parent, you really want to know, like, what does the day look like? And with COVID, you know, it's a parent's right to go in and observe, you know, but I think some parents have this level of like, well, can I do that? Or shouldn't I, you know, I feel like some parents I work with are either on one side of the spectrum where they understand that they can, you know, get certain things and what their rights are by the law. And then other parents feel a little uneasy about asking, can I come observe or what's happening during the day? But what are some key points that parents you think should know, like your kids going to preschool or your kids going to an ABA center? What types of things are important for parents to understand what's happening during the day? Sure. I mean, I think practically speaking, you know, we, we provide a lot of push-in therapy. So like our therapist will go to a D75 school with the child 
for their entire school day. And then we'll also provide the therapy at home. Usually Mm -hmm. it will be a different therapist, but you know, on the days that we may not be there, we may not be there for certain parts of the day. We have found it to be really helpful to like us create this communication sheet for the teacher Mm -hmm. to fill out. And I think what's really important for parents to realize, and you know, this differs across school districts, but like teachers often don't have time to fill out and write this beautiful note and tell you everything. And, you know, like, oh, you know, he loved this book today, or, Mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't, or he tried a pickle, you know, like things that parents care about, right? you know, and would want to know. So we have as providers made these communication sheets for the teacher. And we have advocated on behalf of the parents and been like, you know, mom really wants to know, like, do you mind filling this out? Or like, we want to know if, the, if he, how he did at school today. Cause when we see him at home, we want to know if there was any challenges mm-hmm. at school or, you know, setting events that may set our session up for a little bit of a, a dicey time. Or we want to know, like, did he do, like, we've been working on, you know, requesting mm-hmm. with sentences or like longer sentences. Like, how did he do with that today? So based on like, kind of, we've asked parents, what do you care about? Like, do you want to know how many times they use the toilet? Do you want to know if they initiated the toilet? Mm-hmm. Do you want to know if they played with a new friend today? What friend was that? Sometimes they're not allowed to share that, but right. <laughs> you know, we've collaborated with parents to create our own sheet that we okay. ask school. I have found as a professional, you know, honey, what's the phrase, you know, you get, Oh, you can get more. Yeah. With the sugar, honey versus vinegar. Yes. Yes. And and I would imagine like, I feel like my SLP BCBA brain serves me well for like business things and like data things, like what you're talking about. I could imagine that, you know, you could create this and you could make it like a really easy kind of check sheet. I mean, that's what the teacher that I work with, she's extremely organized. She's not a BCBA, but she definitely could be. And she just makes it extremely easy for her, the paraprofessionals in her classroom to like check off like, yes, speech, the behavior was, you know, okay. There was no behavioral barriers. I think the way that we try to automate it and make it as easy as possible. So we're getting that good information from teachers, but we're not being a stressor and being one more thing that they have to do during the day. Because honestly, especially during COVID, being a public school employee, it just makes you feel extremely emotionally drained and physically. (laughs) And I I mean, I do think that's important, but like, also if you're a parent, like you, it's your right to know. And even, you know, my kids are going to the same school that they've been in for four years and I still haven't stepped foot in that school in 18 months. And I don't know what their classrooms look like. And like, this stuff is bothering to me. And I have, you know, neurotypical kids, but You know, so for for a parent of a child who has a language delay or that isn't able to like really, you know, recap what the day is going, I definitely don't think you should be afraid to ask for information, but keep in mind, you know, have realistic expectations. And Mm -hmm. if if there's a way for you to make it easier for the teacher, like maybe that's the best way to move forward. Yeah, I love that. And I think what's so important too, because I have three kids in public school is like, you just need to have that ongoing communication piece. I have some parents at the beginning of the year, I email every parent on my caseload. It takes me a long time, but I just want to say, hey, it's Rose. I work in a small district. So it's like, usually like they know me and I just say, hey, I'm going to be your child's speech therapist. If you have any questions or concerns or just want to say hi, let me know. I would say... 90% of people are totally fine with that and are just right back and say, hey, you know, and but for the two parents who need more support, I feel like that goes a long way because I'm letting them know I'm here to support you and your child's communication journey. And I feel like sometimes parents just don't, I mean, parents in general just don't feel supported, especially during these times. So I think, yeah, whatever we can do to make sure parents feel that way and that parents, it is your right to have that information and making sure we do it in a way that's seamless and as automatic as possible. So I think that's cool that you guys make those based on what is important for the parent to know. And one other tip for parents is if you have a team of professionals that even if they're 
working in different companies or agencies, like we always start an email thread with Mm -hmm. any other providers, you know, speech OT, you know, any type of medical provider that is working with the child. And like, you know, we will ask the parent, can you connect us? You know, you obviously Mm -hmm. need consent for all that, (laughs) but then you have providers kind of like that, you know, expect that of each other. And then the parents are on the chain and they're able to like, kind of read the recaps too, which I think is pretty beneficial. Yes, absolutely. I always do that. I always try to connect with therapists that way or have shared Google documents so that you're just saying like, hey, this is important. Like, let's be collaborative. So you can always kind of go back to that. So, oh my goodness, such great information. I love it. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Sure. I run our social media on Instagram. It's at BridgeKidsNY. We also have a Facebook page and our website is www.BridgeKidsNY.com. Awesome. It was great to talk with you today. And all of you listening, if you haven't watched my new webinar, it is all about helping autistic students engage and communicate. And you can head over and watch it at your leisure, abaspeech.org slash webinar dash five strategies. Sometimes it can be hard to engage our learners. And so I share all of that information with you. I hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure that you hit subscribe and write a review. It's make sure that you always keep things fun and functional. And thanks so much for joining us, Danny. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.